If you do have questions today, the way that we're going to do it, uh, just for ease, uh, for the sake of ease, is we're going to ask you to email the show by going to mytalk1071.com to the Colleen and Bradley show page. And you can email us from there. If you are not somewhere where you can email and you have a question, we do want to get to those as well. So what you can do is give a call 651-641-1071. And you can ask our producer, Carly, who's uh, running the board for the day. She will then pass those questions on to us so that we can include those in the broadcast today. Uh, it's really important, I think, uh, to be able to answer people's confusion about this and uh, and questions about this and try to understand a little bit better. As you mentioned, Bradley, it has been part of our daily news cycle for at least the last few weeks, if not longer. No, it absolutely has. And again, um, in addition to email, you can tweet us. Yes. Uh, you can also um, give the show a call. And we're just going to uh, take your questions as we're able to as we have our discussion with our special guest, who I believe is ready to chat with us. Uh, again, if you're just joining the Colina Bradley show, it is our Addiction in the Headlines roundtable discussion, and, and we are welcoming to the show uh, Dr. Emily Brunner. Now, she's with the Hazelden Betty Ford Clinic, and we're hoping that she can answer some of the those basic questions that a lot of people have, Colleen, surrounding um, you know the nature of opioid addiction the nature of you know people overdosing from addiction, how it's being treated. I mean, it's really, frankly, an epidemic. Um, Dr. Emily Brunner, thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me and for talking about this. Absolutely. Now, we said one of the things we were hoping is that by having you on the show, we can really help people sort of understand why they've continued to hear story after story, whether it's with a celebrity or somebody in their family or just in, in you know, headlines suffering from uh, opioid addiction or opiate addiction. And uh, we'll get to many of those questions. But if we could just start from, you know, like... Uh, a basic understanding. What even is an opiate or an opioid? Is there a difference? And how do people become addicted to them? Such a great question. And so I know there's a lot of terminology that gets thrown around. It can be confusing. Opiates are the natural form of opioids. Opioids are the class of drugs that include heroin and prescription painkillers, and they all act on opiate receptors of the brain and are very abusable. What kinds of things would people typically be uh, prescribed those in the first place for? So it can be just a wide variety, you know, like uh, knee pain, chest pain, any kind of uh, pain issue, post-surgical, postpartum, as in just had a baby. Um, And it's very common to go home with a bottle of oxycodone or hydrocodone or codeine or morphine. These are just really commonly used substances. So those are some of the substances, um, you know, when you reference hydrocodone, for example, I had a a root canal not too long ago and I was prescribed, uh, you know, or given a prescription for hydrocodone. And that that would be that's also considered an opioid. Absolutely, yes. And probably the most common one prescribed. Can I just, can we just really quickly, um, Dr. Emily Brunner from Hazelden Betty Ford uh, Foundation Clinic, could you help us understand, do people use the words opioid and opiate interchangeably? Are they the same or are they different? They are sometimes used interchangeably. It's essentially a cement. So an opiate is from like a natural form of 
the poppy seed, whereas an opioid is a larger term and includes all the synthetic and semi-synthetic manufactured so, chemicals. So the more generic term would be opioid, which is why we've probably heard that one more frequently yeah, used in the media. Yeah, that's probably why it's thrown around more recently. And sometimes we hear about opiates or opioids, and then we hear them in conjunction with heroin, which I think a lot of people would be more familiar with as a non-prescribed uh, type of, of, of drug. Why is it that we hear those all together? Uh, because heroin is also an opioid. So it's, it, we're essentially there's, you know, there's no difference to the brain between heroin and hydrocodone. Okay. They so act it, in the same way. So really, you know, you, when you put it so plainly, it becomes clear very quickly why something like hydrocodone um, can be so dangerous. And then you sort of realize, as I just, you know, uh, did when I had my root canal, that you're sitting there holding a bottle of something that is a chemically, essentially, or biochemically uh, having the same effect on your body as somebody who is addicted to heroin. So it, it, I guess that's maybe why uh, these drugs can be so dangerous and lend themselves to addiction. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, patients who are addicted to opioid painkillers are actually 40 times more likely to become addicted to heroin for that exact reason. I mean, it's kind of a terrifying and natural progression. Well, and a, and a lot of times, if you guys are just joining us, by the way, we're talking to Dr. Emily Brunner from Hazelden Betty Ford. Um, uh, one of the things I was going to say is I and I've I've heard this and I'm sure many of our listeners had uh, have as well once for a lot of people once a prescription runs out say you know I get a prescription I become hooked uh, I'm not dealing with it in a healthy way um, or getting off of the drug or preventing myself from becoming addicted and hopefully we can talk about how you can do that but um, but then you'll see a progression or a transition from oh I can't get my prescription to I'm on the street now getting heroin because it's essentially going to give me the same high and it's going to probably be a lot cheaper. Yeah, I mean, what you're describing is just this horrifying phenomenon that we see here on a daily basis, it just of people who start by getting a prescription of a painkiller or, or being given it by like a friend or family member, which is actually the number one way that adolescents are exposed to painkillers is to get them for free from a family member or a relative. Um, so just a shout out to just get those out of medicine cabinets because this is often not an intentional thing. Um, they will start that way, um, and then as it becomes, you know, more of a habit and there's unfortunately physical withdrawal symptoms once you take these medications regularly or use them regularly, um, that often people starting out will have no idea that this is going to happen to them. Um, it's just like something fun to do with friends one time, and then they start taking them daily, and then that becomes they can't find them from the medicine cabinet anymore, and then they're going to the street, and then it's too expensive, and then they sort of eventually transition to heroin. In 2014, there was a survey that 94% of people in treatment for heroin addiction chose to use it because it was too expensive and hard to obtain prescription painkillers. Mm. 
Um, the question I had was, so, you know, I generally think, and I've, I've thought about this numerous times, whether it's, you know, the stories that have been in headlines recently with, you know, people and celebrities dealing with, with uh, opiate addiction. Um, and just, you know, anytime I'm thinking about how somebody becomes addicted to prescription medication, like what's the cause of this? And I think, you know, you think, okay, so we're over prescribing. You'll hear people say that a lot. Our doctors are over prescribing these medications. Well, I think, okay, look, most doctors are pretty smart people. In fact, you have to go to, you know, school a long time to figure out how to be a doctor, right? I think of my dentist who prescribed uh, hydrocodone. He was very clear. He's like, if you don't have to use these, don't. And when the the opportunity for pain has passed, throw them away. So he was very clear. So I'm wondering, like, what's the disconnect? Why are we, you know, hearing things like this is uh, a troublesome, um, you know, wave of overaddiction that we're in, yet at the same time, there really are some gatekeepers in place to prevent people from getting these medications. Yeah, I think that that's a, a great, great question. I, I'm so glad that that's the way it was framed to you by your dentist. It, it would be sort of my also gatekeeping instinct. You know, I was trained in primary care, and, and, and I understand, like, there's a desire to give patients everything that they might need because we're trained to help our patients as much as we can, and, and we don't want them to be in pain and have to call us and wait for us to get back to them. But I think with what's going on now, that's probably the right choice to say, start with Tylenol, start with ibuprofen, and, you know, if you're having worse issues, give me a call. Let's make sure there's nothing going on with your tooth like it's infected before we move on to prescribing the painkillers. And that's like a sort of cultural shift that hopefully will occur with time. Dr. Emily Brunner from Hazelden, Betty Ford. My my next question is simply this. It's probably not simple. Um, But how, how does it, how do you sort of make the distinction between using a painkiller or an opioid for its intended purpose to when it becomes like an addiction or abuse? How do you make that distinction? And that, yes, I, I, I wish there was, you know, a, a urine test to tell once you become addicted, right? Because it's, it's clearly a complicated pattern of behavior. But it's essentially when you're continuing to use the substance despite adverse consequences. Mm-hmm. So in many cases, if you're on, say, like a blood pressure medication from your physician and they tell you, oh, it doesn't look like that's helping with your blood pressure. Let's go ahead and stop that. You know, there's rarely a pushback from your patient regarding that sort of decision. Um, If you say it looks like, you know, despite being on Vicodin or Oxycodone, you're not back at work like we were hoping, let's stop that. It it becomes a really different conversation. And and I want to be really clear, too, that that I think that the vast majority of doctors were trained in this idea that pain is the fifth vital sign, that we need to treat our patients' pain really seriously. And we were really fed information that that led us to believe that painkillers were not very addictive. So I think that there was I, – I don't think it's at all an intentional physician problem. I want to really drive that home because I know – people who go into medicine 
do so because they really want to heal others and, and first by doing no harm, right? So I, I don't think this was an intentional overprescription by physicians at all. I think it was intended in a very good manner. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I know many of our listeners have questions. We've got more questions for you. And um, I'm so glad that you're with us for the hour. Dr. Emily Brunner from Hazelden Betty Ford Clinic. We're going to go to break and then we'll come back. Uh, perhaps we'll take uh, a couple of your, your calls and uh, get back with Dr. Brunner. We'll be right back here on the Colleen Bradley Show on My Talk 1071. Welcome back to the Colleen Bradley Show here on My Talk 1071. We are streaming live and doing everything entertainment at MyTalk1071.com. Colleen Lindstrom, I'm Bradley Trainer, and this hour it's our My Talk 1071 roundtable discussion. We're talking about opiate addiction and chronic pain, and uh, it's been in the headlines. You certainly know that. And we've welcomed to the show Dr. Emily Brunner from the Hazelden Betty Ford Clinic to kind of just get a better understanding of this uh, form of addiction and how it's being handled. And Thank you so much for sharing uh, your questions with us on email and by phone. Uh, Colleen, I know we've gotten a lot of questions by email. Did you want to pose yeah. one or two to the to the doctor? Yeah, we ha- we've gotten a ton of really great questions. Please keep them coming. Dr. Brunner, Jess asks this question. Is there such a thing as a person that doesn't have an addictive gene? Oh, what a great question. Um, I think that there is not... One specific addiction gene that we've identified, but about 50% of the liability for addiction is related to genetics. And so certainly having a family history of addiction would make someone much more susceptible to addiction of a variety of substances. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, we can't test for that. That's... that's um, not a genetic study we can do quite yet. But you could say, I would imagine, that with drugs, for example, because, you know, there's a big difference between um, alcohol addiction and an opiate addiction in the sense that I would imagine, well, no, actually, maybe there's not. But I guess what I'm trying to get at is you could take a person who had no addictive past, past yeah. right, who then uh, takes this medication and becomes addicted. So it's not just like, oh, I have an addictive personality. I should avoid this drug. Pretty much anyone, with my understanding, rudimentary as it is, could become addicted to these medications. And that's really interesting. You know, they recently changed the definition uh, per the American Society of Addiction Medicine and the Society for Psychiatric Medication on uh, how to define addiction and use disorders and really tried to pull out the idea of being physically dependent because that really gets mixed up a lot. Mm. And what I can do is I can create physical dependence in anyone by giving them a painkiller over a period of time because their body will get used to it. It will change the way that they process that opioid, and they will get sick if you stop it. But not everyone who then has that stopped has developed an addictive use disorder to where they're then going to change their behavior to try to acquire more of the substance. And so that's become something that it's really important to tease apart Mm. Um, and it's something that makes painkiller addiction really 
difficult and challenging to treat, as you can Im- imagine, because the patients are, are really, really sick. I mean, it is profoundly uncomfortable to have these medications taken away. Well, so really, that's. I'm so glad you brought that up because it, what you're saying is that dependence and addiction are two different things. And I imagine that's what causes some of the confusion that there are those who just develop that physical dependence, their body needs it. And if they withdraw from it, it can actually be very, you know, physically uh, dangerous for them. And then there's a whole nother class of people who go on to develop maybe a psychiatric addiction or uh, an addiction um, and you use the term better than I did, but addiction disorder that um, or use disorder that would lead to all sorts of other complications. Yes, there's been a lot of terminology changes all aimed at really reducing stigma and just really being clear that this is a disease. And so the, the doctor term we use now is opioid use disorder. Hmm. So if somebody comes to a recovery center like Hazelden Betty Ford and, uh, and is trying to recover from an addiction or dependence on opioids, how, how do you deal with this particular unique addiction? Great question. Um, and I would say that there is no one clear answer because obviously, just like any other medical disease, it depends so much on where they are in the course of their disease and what else is going on, whether there are mental health comorbidities. But essentially, there is a period of needing to be detoxed, essentially, from the physical side effects, and that is a more profound process than in many of the other kinds of use disorders. So before we were using medication uh, to treat that, we had a really high rate of patients leaving treatment because they were so profoundly uncomfortable. That has decreased with being able to use appropriate detoxification medications and then thinking more about what kind of medication support to use as the patient is entering longer-term recovery. Uh, well, that just, you know, that brought up something I know we had talked about maybe asking in the next segment, but we might as well just talk about it now. Like, how do you deal? I mean, it's got to be so complicated, right? You, you've you identified all the different variables that can affect how you uh, deal with addiction. I mean, even how you define it and talk about it, right? So in dealing with it, you so okay, you deal with somebody's addiction to this medication, but the reason they started taking the medication is because they needed it, presumably, uh, in many cases. Those who still have chronic pain, for example, how do you then let them lead a life managing that pain as well as their addiction? And I'm that is a question I'm so glad you asked because I think there's a lot of mixed messages about what the goals are for treating the painkiller addiction. It is not the CDC's goal or our goal at Hazelden Betty Ford to take away painkillers from people who use them appropriately, are in a you know good relationship with their physician and don't have a use disorder, and that, that returns them to functioning. It's incredibly important to treat you know, patients with pain and help them to function. However, we're treating patients who've developed a disease 
related to an inability to control those pain medications. Mm. So they're no longer helping them to function, but rather impairing their life, taking them away from their ability to have relationships, to work, and to really feel like themselves. Um, it's incredibly important to continue to do what we can to help support pain treatment in those patients. So just like um, continuing to give higher and higher doses of painkillers wouldn't be how I would treat those patients. Um, also, uh, not treating pain at all and allowing them to suffer would just be inhumane. Um, and it's also a risk factor for relapsing. So we try to really work on, like, finding a holistic plan involving, you know, exercise, physical therapy, chiropractory, you know, potential use of a partial opioid agonists like buprenorphine, um, but to really try to look for how to actually support the patient and return them to their ability to function. If you guys are just joining us, we're talking to Dr. Emily Brunner from the Hazelden Betty Ford Clinic about uh, opioid addiction. And frankly, just, you know, it, it's so I'm so glad we've, we're having this conversation because I'm telling you, there's just so many things I hadn't even thought about. And I've, you know, I'm somebody who have uh, or somebody who has dealt with addiction for 13 years of my own life. And I have such a such a respect for um, those who suffer from this form of addiction because it seems so much more complicated, Colleen, than oh, your yeah. average, you know, like my problem was alcohol. There's been so much research and so many, you know, people have dealt with this addiction over the years that it was just, I don't want to say it was easier, but it was so much more readily understood than, say, um, you know, what we've been talking about around opioids. And to that end, you know, I'd like to ask you the question, Dr. Emily Brunner, is there a reason, I mean, is is this uh, this type of addiction more prevalent now? Are we understanding it differently? Why is it that this is kind of um, coming to the fore right now for us as a culture? Oh, I think there's no question that this is an epidemic of death, right? I mean, it's coming up because it's, Drug overdose has become the leading cause of accidental death in the U.S., primarily because of opioid overdoses related to prescription painkillers. There's also been an increase in overdose death from heroin, um, and that is just an unprecedented thing. You know, no one expected that when the medical field started making more of a focus on treating chronic pain and really trying to add that as a fifth vital sign to make sure that that was always really importantly addressed in the hospital and, and by physicians. It, it was never intended to drive this, this harm. In fact, it was thought that if you were taking painkiller medications such as opiates for um, legitimate pain that you couldn't get addicted. I mean, I was taught that in medical school. Oh, wow. So literally, the, I mean, the literature and, and what doctors that are in practice today were taught, you know, is so, well, it's different than the, the science that we know today. And I imagine that there's going to be a, there's going to be a lag uh, in catching those doctors up. I, I think that the... Um, the recent news about this and the CDC's leadership in um, 
creating new guidelines and, and really talking about this and just, you know, your leadership and speaking about this on the radio, that's so amazing because it's such an important message um, and such a lethal disease. Well, and thank you so much for staying with the conversation. We'll continue it on the other side of this break. Dr. Emily Brunner here on Colleen and Bradley, our My Talk Roundtable discussion. Welcome back to the Colleen and Bradley show here on My Talk 1071, streaming live and doing everything entertainment at MyTalk1071.com. Colleen Lindstrom, I'm Bradley Trainer, and this is our My Talk 1071 roundtable discussion about addiction in the headlines. Look, we talk pop culture and crazy stories half the time, okay, most of the time, mm-hmm. but occasionally we like to dig a little deeper, and that's exactly what this roundtable discussion format is for. And so that is why today uh, our roundtable discussion, Addiction in the Headlines, is uh, happening this hour. We have welcomed to the show Dr. Emily Brunner from the Hazelden Betty Ford Clinic to sort of just help us with the you know rudimentary understanding and and really address a lot of your questions and and concerns. And my gosh, have we gotten a lot of questions? So thank you and Colleen. Uh, let's see if we can get to some more of those. Yeah, so I'm, I'll give you this question, though. We have frankly gotten many variations on this very same theme. And so I'm going to, this this will be representative of many people who have asked similar questions, Dr. Brunner. This person says, I'm on hydrocodone for shoulder pain. I have to take two to notice a difference. And even two sometimes doesn't seem to work all the time. So here, obviously, we're dealing with a chronic pain situation. She says, I try not to take more than two a day, usually in the evening, so I don't get hooked. But what do you do if it doesn't work? How do you how do you deal with this without taking more and getting hooked? And, and that is an absolutely great question. Um, so certainly taking them as prescribed is really, really important. But then also getting back to the doctor and saying, hey, this strategy may not be working. Um, You know, as you're taking them more frequently, you can actually get into this trouble with something called opioid-induced hyperalgesia, which is actually a phenomenon of taking uh, more painkillers at higher doses and actually having more pain. Um, So just seeing what other strategies are out there for the specific kind of pain is often, often there can be a really great like physical therapy or a shoulder injection with a steroid that really turns the tide of the pain. Now, the, one of the things I wanted to get to is overdosing, because a lot of the stories that we see in the headlines around celebrities or, you know, just average people is that they will unintentionally overdose on these medications, because as you just alluded to, uh, there are complications or things that can happen that you wouldn't normally expect or understand to happen um, with the it, it, and also that seems like part of this epidemic is uh, an epidemic of overdosing. What do you think leads to that? And then can we talk? a little bit about things like Narcan or you hear the term save shot or other drugs that sort of address some of these addiction issues. Yes, I'm, I'm so glad you brought up Narcan and overdoses, which is such an important topic. You know, the, the main driver of these deaths, unfortunately, is not um, heroin overdoses, it's painkiller overdoses. Um, and, and often it's for patients who are taking their painkillers as prescribed. Um, there are other medications that can be combined with the painkillers to make them more dangerous. 
sometimes the dose can get escalated or if there's a period of time you aren't taking them and then take them again, you can be at more risk of overdose. So I think unintentional overdose death is just this horrific feature of of having more patients on chronic pain meds for chronic non-cancer pain. Um, Narcan is an amazing reversal agent that is available either as a nasal inhaler or an injector form, um, and it can reverse the effects of the opiates for about an hour period of time so it can revive people and bring them out of overdose. I want to make sure to mention that if you have the opportunity to use an Arcan kit, it's really important to also call 911 and get medical support because it's possible to come out of the overdose for a period of time and based on the half-life of the drugs, go back into it, mm. you know, an hour or two later. Um, and so I would obviously never want that to happen to anyone listening. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm I'm glad that you brought that up. I think people have this understanding uh, perhaps because... Well, I mean, you know, we're just not all that informed and hopefully now we're becoming more informed, but there is no sort of magic cure to this problem. Yes, it may prevent you from dying in that moment for a period of time, but it's not addressing the underlying issues. Um, and it's certainly not necessarily a cure all or just, oh, don't worry about it. We've got Narcan. And to that extent, there are other drugs um, that people who suffer with these use disorders are uh, or can be put on or managed with. Am I right? Yes. Um, so there, there's a, a number of other drugs. Um, I, I want to highlight methadone, buprenorphine, and uh, Vivitrol or extended-release naltrexone, all of which are indicated to treat opioid use disorders, um, all of which reduce mortality um, and all of which can be employed in safe ways within the context of a larger treatment program. You know, we, I, I have a question. It's sort of a lengthy question from a listener, but it is along these lines about how you deal with an opiate addiction. Um, this person is telling the story of a friend of hers who, who has been, on heroin for many, many years and uh, wanted to stop taking heroin, started taking methadone every day, and then uh, and then now is finding himself in a place where he's, he's using questionable methods to get th- the methadone. And she's curious about his addi- whether he's got an addiction and if there's a way to, if there's a healthy way to quit an opioid like methadone or is it something that really inpatient treatment is needed for? Great question, um, and and a very controversial, interesting thing that's being studied. What is the best medication? What is the best taper schedule? Can there be a taper schedule for both buprenorphine and methadone? Those things are being hotly studied uh, by the government right now. Um, you know, I think that. The short answer is that methadone, because it has a long and unpredictable half-life, can be really difficult to wean off of and and reduce down on. I mean, certainly I work at Hazelden Betty Ford because I strongly believe in also incorporating 
other multidisciplinary aspects of treatment, so um, counseling and 12-step meetings and, and just other supports. Um, and so I think that combining that in addition to the medication can be even more powerful. Um, residential treatment is always a really good place to stabilize when making changes in the medications because it's just so physically uncomfortable. And these these drugs act on the part of your your brain that that tells you you have to breathe and eat and you know procreate. It's like an incredibly powerful drive and and incredibly uncomfortable to come off of any of these medicines. You know, you've mentioned a couple times about how how uh, intensely uncomfortable it is to withdraw from an opioid. Can you explain, is there is there a way that you can kind of characterize or explain what that might look like if somebody is doing it and they are feeling uncomfortable from it? So it can, uh, you can appear flushed. There can be like a profound diarrhea, sweating, tearing, um, a lot of agitation. There will be like pupil changes so the pupils get real big. Um, and it's just a, a profoundly uncomfortable mm-hmm. state. Yeah, absolutely. And I imagine that, um, you know, that there's a whole host of then psychological or psychiatric um, withdrawal symptoms that somebody would, would go through, which is why it's so important to, you know, have somebody working within a framework like the one that you guys uh, provide at Hazelden Betty Ford Clinic. I was going to say, do you, is there... I would imagine there is some disagreement between, and if you guys are just joining us on the Colleen Bradley show, we're talking addiction in the headlines with Dr. Emily Brunner from the Hazelden Betty Ford Clinic. Is there, you know, there's got to be some friction between um, the different interests here. So what doctors are doing and what doctors believe is the best way to approach things. And I know I'm lumping things together very simply just for the basis of our our brief discussion, but then what the treatment community is dealing with and discussing, like how, how is, how do you have a uh, productive conversation between those two interests? Cause I feel like at sometimes you guys are at opposing, opposing interests. I think that everyone has the patient's welfare at at the core, right? You know, we doctors as as treatment centers, we all just want to help our patients as best we can and and that's why these facilities exist. You know, they're they're mission driven. Um, and so I, I think that we have a, a lot of common ground and that there, there's a building consensus for just, it really depends on the patient's values and their, like their specific situation. Um, I really like to, to liken addiction treatment with diabetes treatment, which involves like a team of people and you can have a diabetic that is diet controlled, loses some weight, and never ever uses injectable insulin. Um, and you can also have a diabetic who's hospitalized over and over again based on genetic factors, despite being, you know, diet controlled and, and doing everything they're asked. And so it's just like different severities of disease that we're approaching in different ways. 
Absolutely. If you guys are just joining us, as I said, we're talking about addiction in the headlines. We're going to continue to take your questions and chat with Dr. Brunner when we come back here on the Colleen and Bradley Show. Welcome back to the My Talk 1071 Roundtable Discussion. Addiction in the headlines with Colleen and Bradley here on My Talk 1071. Thank you for joining us. For this hour, we've been speaking with Dr. Emily Brunner about that very topic. Uh, we've seen story after story, some with celebrities, and some just, you know, completely gripping personal narratives about people suffering from opiate addiction and all of the things that that uh, entails. And, and we've really gotten, uh, you know, sort of a great primer, I think, Colleen. Uh, we've also gotten a lot of great questions from our listeners uh, for the good doctor. So why don't we uh, ask her a a few more? Yeah, absolutely. Wonderful questions coming directly from our listeners like this one from Dustin. And this is sort of along the lines, Dr. Brunner, of um, talking about how doctors are prescribing opiates. Um, Dustin asks, is it possible that reimbursement from drug companies or patient satisfaction could be one of the things that's driving prescriptions? I, I think that um, it is possible. I, I think that probably more along the lines of just the changing landscape of medicine to have less time with patients and, and also potentially have patient satisfaction scores playing into your, your job ratings it probably does have some impact. Um, I, I really do think that the main impulse to prescribe pain medications comes from patients presenting as really wanting them mm-hmm. and, and a desire to help the patient. I, I think that's the overriding reason that this has has become an issue. Now, from from your experience, I mean, you've you've been in this, you know, field um, and you've seen the, the challenges and you've sort of, you know, we've talked to you for just a, a few brief moments. I mean, what as somebody who has been dealing with this, you know, on the front lines, what is the the biggest thing you just wish people could understand or like the, the biggest message you'd want to get out about this this problem? That this is opioid addiction is absolutely a disease, that it is one that can be treated and that with treatment, there's absolutely nothing that people can't do. You know, they can return to their family, their job, their life, like they can have a transformation. You know, I think there's a lot of hope in treatment of this because I get to watch people like get their life back and come alive in an amazing way. Which is so important. Um, Sarah has emailed us and she clearly has a concern. She says, if a physician continues to prescribe opiates to a patient who is abusing the drug or is giving it when no longer needed, are you, what's the procedure of reporting the physician? I think that, uh, Step one would be to seek more information on the case and and kind of go along to the next appointment um, to see what's really going on. In my experience, that story of I tell them that I don't want it and, and, and they just keep prescribing as often a story. Mm-hmm. Oh, sure. Something that they're telling the, the third party the because... Family member. Yeah. Mm-hmm because they don't want to have to admit that perhaps uh, they've been lying to their doctor about actually needing that prescription sure. because they've, they've been, well, they've become addicted. 
And that can just be a powerful tool too for being able to get more of a more of a um, word in with the doctor too, and it will probably be really helpful to everyone involved to sort of have everyone in the same room. Do you feel like, you know, all of this attention, you know, you, you hate to say, oh, look, there's some good news out of bad. But really, I, I wonder if a lot of these, you know, tragic stories that have sort of uh, percolated their way through the media and social media uh, and beyond has has helped bring light to this issue um, and that people are starting to take notice in a way that perhaps they didn't before. I, I think that that is true, and certainly I, I don't want to see one more person overdose and die of this problem that that is just so sad. Um, but I, I think that it is hopeful that there is a lot of discussion on what the solutions might be. I think that's that's been really amazing to see. Oh, absolutely. If you guys are just joining us, by the way, uh, you're listening to our My Talk 1071 Roundtable discussion, Addiction in the Headlines. We're talking with Dr. Emily Brunner from the Hazelden Betty Ford Clinic. Now, here's something, you know, we've got a, a few more minutes to chat, so and I know this is a much bigger issue, but I think this is a really good opportunity um, to sort of clear up maybe perhaps a stereotype or a misnomer about addiction. So we got this email from Mary who said, Okay, I'm having a very difficult time with the reference to addiction in the same as diabetes. People with diabetes type 1 do not have a choice. Heroin addiction is a choice. Can you address uh, what I imagine often people say or feel about addiction? Yeah, I think that that, um, that is a common concern that it feels, and I hear that honestly a lot from my patients, um, and it drives this stigma like, oh, I should have known better. How can, how can I ever, um, how can I ever get past this when I, when I made all these choices? Cause, cause they can feel like choices, but, um, just the outside, like the neurologic science is just incredibly clear that the, this is acting on a part of the brain that tells you that you have to continue using this substance to stay alive. And so so I was more connecting it to type 2 diabetes, which certainly has a lot of genetic components, but also has a lot of behavioral components in what you choose to eat and how much you choose to exercise. And so I think that, that addiction is a really good parallel in that a lot of it is, you know, if you never, ever drink or never have a surgery and are exposed to these medications, it's true that it's unlikely to develop. But there are many people, the vast majority of people, who take a bottle of painkillers or as prescribed or have a few drinks, don't have an addictive disease and don't develop this kind of problem. So it really is, It re- there really is more to the story and part of what, you know, you guys have done, of course, at Hazelden Betty Ford and many people have tried to do is sort of detach that stigma from what is an actual disease. Yeah. Yeah, what I keep on hearing you you say is that it, it becomes a, a place, it, it kind of, there's a tipping point where your body physiologically changes, the chemistry of your body changes to the point that you actually need to continue taking this drug. I mean, you talked about what withdrawal is like, and there's a reason for that. 
Yeah, it's recruiting the brain system for survival and sort of it's it's just a potently difficult thing to combat and that's why it requires this intensive treatment and medications and counseling and just every resource we can throw at it because it's acting in this area that just uses all of your your own skills against you. Absolutely. You know what, um, Dr. Emily Brunner, uh, I want to just say thank you as we wrap things up for, you know, helping shed light on what is, you know, clearly a very complicated discussion and area of, of life that more and more people, unfortunately, are becoming familiar with. And I know, you know, no, no show could sort of broach all the topics. Is there a place that you would recommend people go if they have concerns about themselves or perhaps someone in their family in determining whether or not uh, perhaps it's time to get some outside resources involved? Um, certainly the, you know, Hazelden Betty Ford website, hazeldenbettyford.org, and the 1-800 number, 1-800-257-7800, would be a helpful place to start. And also to go in to discuss this with your primary care physician because it truly is a medical illness and, and often they can be really helpful at starting to address this. And in the couple minutes that we have left, do you have any sort of, I know we didn't leave a lot of time for this question, but if somebody is concerned about somebody in their lives that they're worried could be abusing opiates or um, could have kind of a difficult relationship with those types of drugs, do you have any advice about how to approach that topic with the person? I think that um, that the, the way to approach this is always from the place of caring and concern and 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 reminding the family member or friend that that you're wondering because because you care about them and you love them and that that is just a really different discussion from from feeling attacked mm-hmm. and it can lead to a lot more productive action well, Dr. Emily Brunner from Hazelden Betty Ford Clinic, thank you so much. And we are going to make sure we post all of the resources you've given us on our website so people can do some additional research. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And no, you know, no show could deal with all the issues, but thank you for all your questions. And uh, we'll certainly talk about this again in the future. This has been our My Talk 1071 roundtable discussion. We'll be right back.